Welcome to The Fighting Life. I'm Chris and that's James. Over the last few episodes, we've been telling the stories of world heavyweight champs. Today we're telling the story of a man who never earned that title. Not because he didn't have talent, he had it in spades. And not because he didn't have ambition. For 10 years he travelled the globe fighting all comers. The reason he never got a shot at the title was because of the colour of his skin. During his life, Peter Jackson was widely acknowledged as the greatest heavyweight of his era. Sadly, the Australian fighter has largely been forgotten to history. We're trying to rectify that today. James, can you tell us where the story of Peter Jackson begins? G'day, Chris. Peter Jackson was born on the tiny Caribbean island of St. Croix in 1860 or 1861. He grew up loving the outdoors, running, swimming, diving, all that sort of stuff. He was really good in the water. He was the son of freed slaves. His dad's a carpenter. He's a big, strong guy. and Jackson takes after him. He wants to see the world. There's not a lot of opportunity on his little island, so he becomes a sailor like his older brother, and he ends up in Sydney. So he's travelled halfway across the globe. What's Sydney like when he finds it? Well, Jackson loves it. It's um, Sydney at the time. It's a bustling, booming little town. There's about 220,000 people there, and um, it's somewhere you can find work, especially for someone like Jackson who can roll up their sleeves. He's growing, even though he's only a teenager, he's already the size of a man and um, gets work pretty easily. So he gets work as a lumberjack. Uh, he works as a machinist, a deckhand. There's actually a really good story around this period. He's working on a boat called the Manly, and the boat travels up north to northern New South Wales pretty regularly. And it travels to Urunga, and there's a river there, the Bellinger River. Oh, yeah. And um, it breaks down. The boat breaks down in the mouth of the river. A rope gets caught around a propeller, and they don't know what to do. The water's pretty sharky there i don't know if you know about uh urunga but if you google mouth of urunga river there's one of the second things you'll see is shark attack there no, 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 okay it's pretty dodgy and the, yeah the captain doesn't know what to do with with the boat and jackson volunteers dives this shows what kind of courage and uh athletic ability he has he dives overboard and spends about an hour in the water diving under to untangle these ropes I don't know if he knew what a bull shark was. Probably didn't know what a bull shark was. <laughs> yeah, but It might have been blind luck that kept him alive. So um, he's obviously at home in the water in Sydney he's yep. and, and a good athlete. How does he find a home amongst the sporting community in Sydney? Yeah, so he's an excellent athlete in, in all regards. He's, a, as I said, a great swimmer and a great diver, but also boxing. He starts hanging around an athletics club in Sydney. And also there's, there's uh, a few reports around this time that he's not someone to pick on because a lot of rough and tumble guys around the docks and that sort of stuff. He has his first fight as a teenager in Sydney, his first boxing match against a guy called Cigarette Kelly. Which is <laughs> what, gr- what do we do? We know anything about Cigarette Kelly besides an awesome nickname? That's it. All we, all we know is that he lived off this for years afterwards. Um, he was known as Jackson's first fight and that, he was his, that was his claim to fame for years afterwards. When does he start training? Who's he learning from in those early days? He runs into a bloke, uh, Harry Sallers. And so Harry Sallers becomes like a father figure to him. Sallers is a um, a black American boxer, but he's in his 60s. He's got a lot to teach, young Jackson. And the two get on really well for a while. And then they sort of have a bit of a falling out. But before they have a falling out, Sallers says to him, if you really want to take this boxing thing further, you should talk to Larry Foley. Larry Foley, the... uh 
one of my favorite characters from that era yep. bare knuckle boxer you know brawled long rounds then became a pub owner then had a what the white horse saloon was it yeah where, where there was correct me if i'm wrong but it was a pub and it was a boxing yes <laughs> a boxing gym which yep. is i don't know if that's either the best idea that somebody's had or the worst idea <laughs> yeah foley is the he's the person to talk to at this era if you want to be a boxer I've heard a few different versions of him going to Foley's gym. You know, it seems like every man and his dog claim to have sent him there. What's the story you like to go with? Well, the story that Foley would tell years later was that he ran into Jackson one night in 1880. He was walking through Sydney and, and Jackson was getting mugged by six thugs. And Foley said he offered to help Jackson. And Jackson said, no, I can, I can handle myself then proceeds to knock out all these guys. And there was apparently there was a small crowd of people around watching this happen and they couldn't believe it. And um, Foley said to him afterwards he had to invite him to the gym because he was such an t- obvious talent at boxing. And that's the next thing. So pretty soon he's working at Foley's gym slash pub situation. What exactly is he doing there? What is a role at Foley's gym so, involved? Mopping up beer and blood? Pre- pretty much he's um, he's a kitchen hand and a roustabout does a bit of everything more than anything he's finding everything he wants to know about boxing from the source itself larry foley and yeah there's some good there's some good stories here where everyone knew that foley was the king of australian boxing so they'd want to test themselves so blokes would often rock up to the pub wanting to fight foley <laughs> and foley didn't want to fight anyone he wanted to smoke cigars and drink wine so he would just tell jackson to take care of it <laughs> so jackson would have to almost daily sometimes they would say two times a day he would be in the ring fighting strangers so that's that's his education so in foley's pub slash gym who are the other fighters he's meeting there besides the people that just come in to punch on well one of the one of the big fighters from this era is frank slaven also he's got a great fight name the sydney corn stalk (laughs) now it's it's funny but slaven was one of it goes on to become one of the great heavyweights of this era I read a great description of him. It says, he was a big-boned, square-jawed rock of a man, hairy and ferocious. <laughs> yeah, he's a big unit. He's similar, similar size to Jackson, over six foot tall, both very strong, yeah, brilliant boxers. By all accounts, they get on pretty well. And Peter's destiny will be entwined with this guy. And Bob Fitzsimmons, he was at the gym as well? Yep. So Bob Fitzsimmons is one of the most famous names in this story but uh but yeah bob arrives at the gym uh gets on pretty well with jackson actually jackson coaches fitzsimmons um from 1883 onwards jackson's known as professor jackson's they called the boxing coaches back there and and yeah fitzsimmons is one of his pupils and they get on really well Uh, of course jackson is regarded by fitz and everyone else as much better than fitz what was his opinion on Jackson as a boxer, even years down, like years down the track? Well, he said he didn't want to ever fight Jackson for two reasons. He said, number one, because he's his friend. He didn't want to fight his friend. And two, because he's the best fighter that there ever was. He told uh, the Cleveland Gazette, he said, he's the greatest fighter that ever breathed. He's the daddy of them all. And for that reason, I don't care to meet him. So tell me about what the fighting style he develops. He's, he's a tall guy. He's a very smooth, elegant boxer. Um, can do it all, really. They said that 
he's one of the first heavyweights to fight on his toes. And he's known for his great combination punching. They talk about his one-two a lot. They were almost simultaneous the way that he threw those punches. Um, a smart fighter too. Very smart. And after being at Foley's for a while, very experienced. How does his boxing career progress in Australia? He travels around Australia and has a couple of losses, but mostly wins. Gets better and better. And by 1886, uh, he gets a shot at the Australian heavyweight title. He fights a guy called Tom Lees, and he does it pretty easily. He knocks out Lees, and he's later presented with a belt. I think Foley actually puts in money to, to make this belt. It's his pride and joy, this belt. He'll take it around the world with him for the next however many years. And um, when he goes into a new town, he'll go to the local bank and give it to them for safekeeping. But yeah, he's he's becoming really well-liked in Australia at this time. If you read any of the newspaper clippings from the time, he's, uh, yeah, they only say very good things about him. His nickname uh, from, from about this period onwards is the Black Prince. And I think... People, of course, liked the way he boxed, but he was also a real gentleman in the ring and, um, yeah, a real classy guy. While he's fighting in Australia, does he have any trouble getting fights on account of being black? Well, not not until he fights a guy called Jack Burke. Uh, This guy comes in from overseas. He's fought the who's who at the time. He's a very popular fighter. And he wants to fight the Australian champion until he finds out it's Peter Jackson. He just said, he draws the colour line. He says, I don't fight black people. He says, it's not personal. He says, uh, I just don't want that on my reputation. Australian boxing fans couldn't believe it at the time. They wanted to see the fight happen. Uh, everyone was sort of outraged over here. One, There was one journalist at the time who said that Jackson should be the one drawing the colour line here. They said he should draw it against redheads because this guy's <laughs> this guy's a redhead to draw the colour line. I hope you're not offended by that, James. No, no I'm okay. Being a blood nut yourself. <laughs> now tell me about, he's cleaned out of Australia, he's the top dog there. What, what, how, when does he decide to go to America? So in 1888, he's kind of proved he, he's the best fighter in Australia easily and he decides to take on the States. So um, he goes on what the press call at the time his offensive tour, which is a great name for a tour. Uh, the Maitland Mercury says... Australia's boxing champion, Professor Peter Jackson, has left our shores for what may properly be called an offensive tour, for he intends on challenging each and everybody in the land of the Stars and Stripes. It's April 1888 when uh, Peter Jackson comes steaming in. (laughs) Steaming into San Francisco. Sorry, he's on a steamship. I was going to say sailing. When he steams into Alam- on the Alameda into San Francisco, how is he received when he lands in America? He's received very well. They've heard stories about him in the colonies, as they would have called it. And yeah, they know how good a fighter he is. They see him sparring and they know he, how good he is. He gets a fight, um, wins that. And a little while later, he gets a shot at the coloured championship of the world. Sorry, the coloured heavyweight championship. That's what they called it. That's George Godfrey. He fights. I've I've got a if I can if you can indulge me, I'll read an account of the yeah, fight. Sure. There, it's it, well, it's not an account of the whole fight because it went for you know eighteen, nineteen rounds. But it said um, at the end of the eighteenth round, Jackson had everything his own way and hammered his man at will. Godfrey's pluck and endurance, however, stood between him and a knockout. Although he was terribly punished and his face battered until he was almost past rec- recognition. It is yeah. shortly after. So 
he gave Godfrey a, a fair beating by the sounds of it. And Godfrey was a great fighter in his own right. So this is no small feat. Godfrey's someone who had also been trying to get a shot with Sullivan and, and Sullivan had said, I don't want to fight George Godfrey. Okay, so he's the Australian champion. He's beaten everyone in Australia that matters. He's the coloured world champion. How does Sullivan must have to take notice of this? No, what Sullivan's going to do is draw the colour line. <laughs> he, uh, he's heard of Jackson, obviously, and um, he doesn't want to fight him. Jackson's kind of plan here is he'll stay busy, he'll keep winning fights, and hopefully, hopefully, John L. Sullivan will take him on down the track. I guess we should talk about, you know, this is a boxing podcast or a fighting podcast, but you can't not talk about race here. Um, well, it's central to his story. One thing I think we should consider or remember, this is 25 years after the Civil War ended in America, so there's a lot of tension there. Yep. And then meanwhile in Australia, even though, you know, the ring is integrated and Peter Jackson's widely respected and loved in Australia, you know, there's the indigenous indigenous Australians are still, you know, there's massacres still happening in Australia. Yep. And even the way that Peter Jackson was talked about in the paper in some sections with racist terms or he's as good as a white man. So he's no stranger to racism. But it feels like it's a different level again in America or it's a, diff- it's a different experience to what he rubbed up against in Australia. Is there any quotes where he talks about that or any? Yeah, so the, the first year in America, he really notices it. And it is there are quotes in the press about um, him talking about these experiences over there. It's a sort of a new, a new racism he didn't feel when he was in Australia. Um, there's, a, there's a quote in the Chicago Tribune uh, where it says, he has been greatly disheartened while here by ardent prejudice against him on account of his colour. He was refused admittance to several baths and other places, an experience which he said he never met with in the Australian colonies. Something um, I saw also on the flip side of that is that he became a bit of a hero within the black... As he's fighting and getting his name built up, he beats like an up-and-comer McAuliffe who's, who's a great fighter or, you know, is expected to be a great fighter. And um, the black community really rallies around him and sees him as quite a hero. Yeah, they do. There's even a, a Peter Jackson Society, some, some guys in Texas uh, create... He um, yeah he gets, becomes very popular over there. Well, I even saw that the um, Frederick Douglass, the emancipationist in America, had a picture of Peter Jackson in his study and that he'd show people. Oh, yeah. And he's and he, there's a quote where he said, "Peter's doing a great deal with his fists to solve the Negro question." You know, and, and and they also mentioned that he considered him one of our best missionaries abroad. Yeah, right. When he was obviously ended up fighting in England and you know just being a fantastic representative of the community. How is Sullivan responding to Jackson? How does he feel about Jackson's growing fame and people fighting him and that sort of thing? Yeah, not very well. John L. John L. is uh, he's a man of, a te- of temper, and he he finds out about some of these guys that that are fighting Jackson, which makes him look pretty gutless in a way, yeah. isn't it? Or you know, pretty petty. Yes. And he, he hates that. And he, what, he, come, he comes across one of these guys that, uh, that Jackson fought and beat. He was a good fighter, uh, Sailor Brown. It comes across him in a pub where, where you'd find John L. Sullivan. And, um, <laughs> no pub is safe from John L. Sullivan. That's oh, right. Like you'd, you'd be drinking and looking over your shoulder waiting for him to tear up the place. So he comes into this pub, sees Sailor Brown, and 
starts calling him every name under the sun, a lot of racial terms used just because he fought Jackson. And he apparently assaulted Sailor Brown as well at this point. So, yeah, he's he's not taking it well. And Jackson's sort of mindset here is, well, I'm just going to keep fighting and I'm going to keep winning. Jackson's in a tough spot, isn't he? He's not a guy that challenges people anyway. He's very much lets his fist do the talking. But you've got Sullivan going into pubs going, I'll lick any son of a bitch in the world. Yeah. And it's like, well, I'm right here. Yeah. What about me? But he, he he's not someone to say, well, you're gutless if you don't fight me. You don't no. have he's more just like, well, I'm here. He's almost he's almost too nice for his own good. Um, people love him because he's like that. But he doesn't stir up animosity at all with other. Um, he doesn't sell the fights like that at all. Yeah. So he goes to act, to try and meet Sullivan around this time to try and see if that will drum up the fight. Let's have a chat with. Him. Yeah. So he travels to where Sullivan is staying in Chicago and um, Sullivan won't come downstairs to meet him. But there's a reporter there at the time and Jackson talks to the press and Jackson says, I'm not struck on seeing anybody who doesn't want to see me. I thought I would like to meet Sullivan, having heard so much about him. But if he does not desire my acquaintance, I will not force it on him. Since I came to the United States, I've had a great many. I've met a great many men of education, wealth, and high social and political position, and they have all treated me most agreeably. I have no objection to Sullivan drawing the colour line on me. That is his privilege. You got to sort of think. Uh, you got to talk a bit of smack sometimes, yeah. don't you? Like in like he uh, he just thought. Well, you, you da- sort of got to, It's a naivety that you know. If I'm the best, eventually I'll be undeniable. And but dangerous time for a man like him to be talking. Exactly about. true. Easy for me to say that, isn't it? Easy to say he should have said, well, like I just said, he can't go into a bar and go, look, any son of a bitch in the world, yeah. get him murdered. Yeah. Like we said, he, he keeps busy while he's in America and fights a lot of boxers. Are there any ones in particular you think are worth pointing out? Yeah, in, in 1889, he takes on a guy called Tom Lynch and it's a terrible, rough fight. He's getting the better of Lynch and Lynch goes full Mike Tyson on him and, uh, and bite, he bites him a couple of times and tries to kick him and then starts saying all this racial stuff. And um, the cops actually have to come in the ring and pull Lynch off him. Yeah. The fight starts again and Jackson just beats seven shades out of him, really gives it to him. And afterwards, Lynch has kind of calmed down and he tries to shake Jackson's hand, sort of like apologize a bit. And Jackson doesn't want to shake his hand. And uh, Lynch loses his temper here when uh, Jackson won't shake his hand, like a black man not shaking his oh, white hand. Okay. Sort of you, thing. You, you, who do you think I ought to refuse my hand? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And he says, he says, God forbid that I should that I should shake hands with a low, contemptible cur like you. You ought to be proud to shake the hand of a white man, is what he said. Oh. And um, and that's reported. That's in the press at the time. Yeah. Um, gosh. So, yeah, Jackson, Jackson just keeps. Chiefs keeps going. He keeps winning. He goes through this stuff and uh, just keeps fighting and winning. He goes across to England as well while he's waiting for his fight with you know Sullivan, and even there he adds another notch to his belt when he takes on Jem Smith. Yeah, so Jem Smith, Smith's a great fighter um, from this era. It's a, for the Commonwealth he's, title. We have to talk about his physique. Have you yes. seen photos of him? Yeah. 
Like, I don't know how to explain it. He's like a square almost. Like, he is so solid. Yeah, he's a unit. Like, he looks like a fridge. Yeah, kind of, yeah, just that wide neck, wide shoulders. Yeah. Yeah, he was uh, a great fighter. He loved the bare knuckle stuff, didn't he? Yeah, they thought it would, people, a lot of people thought he would beat Jackson, but Jackson went through him in about five minutes. Jem Smith resorts to his wrestling, which was more part of... After he's just getting smashed? Is that yeah. like he can't outbox him, so he yeah. goes to MMA on him? He went, yeah, and uh, he gets disqualified. And the thing is, the, the British people love Peter Jackson as well. They call him Peter the Great over there. And he loves, he loves living in it. Like he stays, goes to England a fair, fair bit after this. By that time, he's the best in England, which is essentially the best in Europe. Yep. He's the best in Australia. Yep. And he's the coloured champion of America. So he's the best, you know, so there's Three crowns. One, you know belt of aid in him at that time. But he still can't get that fight against Sullivan. What does he do? He decides to go back home to Australia for a holiday. So it's been three years now that he's been on this offensive tour. And he's achieved a lot. I mean, he hasn't got that the main belt, but he's done everything he can. He's beaten everyone he can, um, but decides to come back home for Australia for a holiday. And he says at the time, all he wants to do is relax, hang out with his friends and drink a few beers. What could possibly go wrong with that plan? <laughs> <laughs> so he's, a, he's on holidays. He's is, not, the, is this sort of idea or he's not, you know, in serious fighting form? What happens? I take it he ends up in a fight. So yeah, in Australia at the time, the new kid on the block, the new uh, the new up and coming boxer is a guy called Joe Goddard. Joe Goddard's actually a great boxer himself, and he sort of has claim. He's claiming that he is now the Australian champion since Peter's been away. I've seen Goddard described as a pretty wild fighter. As, as, as sort of said, he's a tornado ups, that upsets all ideas of form and just wades in and soaks himself in gore. He's just about as pleasant to run against as a runaway cab horse in a narrow street. And knowing this, and knowing that Jackson's just there to have a few beers and relax, does he pull himself together in time to take on this challenge that yeah, not, comes up? Not really. He uh, okay. <laughs> he used to actually train Goddard, so okay. he doesn't really see him as a threat. He thinks he's got his measure. And the, the fight day is the same day as the Caulfield Cup. Big race in Australia. Yeah, big Huge. race. And Jackson decides to have a few beers and watch the races. So, uh, <laughs> okay, yeah. So you, something you don't do on fight day, not traditionally. And his his friends try to sober him up before the fight. They put him in a hot bath, and uh, but yeah, is that, and that's going to just is what sweat out the booze. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the science, <laughs> the science behind it. But it doesn't work. He gets in the when he gets in the ring. They say he's, he was still tipsy. And uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting fight. Um, it's it's pretty even, as you described. Goddard's a wrecking ball of a man. He comes forward. He's a big man, and uh, it's a very close fight. He takes some rounds off Jackson. It ends up being a draw. Jackson can't be happy with that result, can he? No, he's furious. He just that he, he was angry at himself that he got went out drinking and he didn't take it seriously. He Goddard was better than he thought he was. And you, you, obviously we're talking about him getting on the grog there. He's, he ends up being a bit of a boozer. Yeah, well, you don't hear about it a lot or you don't read about it a lot at this point. From about 1890 onwards, you start to hear about it. The press will report that he's out late at night and that sort of stuff. But, yeah. I guess it's I, that. Well, we saw it with Sullivan as well, didn't we? Once the fame came, or came the drink, came the celebrating. You know, it's very hard to keep your feet on the ground. Especially well, with their lifestyle, I think. And the people they would have been mixing with as as boxers. 
yeah, it's, it's, and it's also just fun to have a drink sometimes, yeah. isn't it? That's right. <laughs> it's... Jackson still hasn't given up his world title ambitions, so he heads back to America? Yeah, back on his offensive tour. Um, picks up where he left off, heads back to the West Coast, and he's looking for a fight and does end up landing the fight with Jim Corbett. That we've talked about Corbett in an earlier podcast. He's, you know, very, what would you call him, flashy? Yep. Uh, slick, yeah. uh, gent- gentleman Jim he's sold as, but you know, as we spoke about, not quite the gentleman that Peter Jackson is. There's a lot of buzz about him. He's much admired in San Francisco. What happens when they get in the ring together? So just over a month before the fight, Jackson falls out of a carriage and hurts his ankle. Sounds like he may have been drinking. Well, that, because that's one of the stories. It could, it could well have happened. Well, that could be, you know, just people bad-mouthing, you know, spreading rumours. Could be that too. But going off our last story at the Caulfield Cup, it, it might yeah, be, be booze-related. But he really hurts his ankle. What we do know is that he was on crutches for about two or three weeks. And, I mean, before in that period before a fight, I don't think anyone would do that today. Well, it's, his trainer, was it Fitzpatrick? Yep. Wanted him to postpone the fight. Well, and some people as well thought that they thought he was that much better than Corbett that... It wouldn't really matter if he had a, a bad ankle for it. But Corbett's, as we know, a very sly and shrewd operator. And, uh, and he's going to use this to his advantage as much as possible. He just what, runs from Jackson for most of the fight or avoids engaging as much well, as yeah, he it's, it's As we've gone over, it's a, it's, it ends up being a four-hour fight. Yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, That's not good on anyone's ankles. You could have, your ankles could be fine at the start of the fight. By the end, they're going to be sore. If it's already busted... You're yeah. in trouble. So when they meet, it's May 21, 1891. And it's a huge fight. Uh, there's 100 reporters there. And it's pretty even, I guess. It's But it does go for four hours. It finishes, <laughs> it finishes at 1.30 in the morning. Yeah. People are falling asleep. Some people are gone home. That Sam Fitzpatrick said his foot was so swollen, he had to cut the boot open. You know, yeah. so halfway through the fight because it couldn't fit in his shoe. And he, you know, it just sounds... Awful. Jackson was doing it hard. Yeah. And I've heard other accounts saying that Jackson initiated every exchange. So he was the attacking fighter the whole way through this bout. Corbett's just on the back foot, just trying to counter him whenever he could. But by the end, neither of them can really stand up. They're both sort of falling over. And the ref just says, it's a no contest. Obviously, the draw is great news for Corbett. You know, it puts his name on the front page everywhere and he's famed for going 61 rounds with this legend. It can't help... Jackson in his campaign to fight Sullivan really how's that relationship going with him and old John L not good uh he's still trying to get that that bout with John L and they actually have a run-in shortly after this John L comes into Jackson's pub so Jackson <laughs> Jackson buys his own saloon in San Francisco <laughs> Do you think John L realized it was Peter Jackson's saloon when he went in there or is he just barging like he because he would go to 20 pubs a night well, I reckon he, I reckon he might have because yeah. he came. Apparently, he came in yelling, and as we all know, he when he's been out on the booze, he's a nightmare to deal yeah. with, and apparently came in yelling uh, all sorts of slurs at Jackson, even apparently attempted to, to punch him as well. <laughs> but his mate, his friends pulled him out of the pub. So yeah, not a great, not a great first meeting. But they'll actually meet again. Uh, a couple of months later, formally, neither of them are drunk. <laughs> and and um, <laughs> the stars align. The stars align. Finally, they get to meet formally. 
and it's as though Sullivan does not remember this first yeah, really. thing. So he must have either been that drunk or he's purposely, you know, saying he didn't remember. Yeah. But but yeah, they do meet again and it's very civil and they're very polite to each other's faces. Yeah. John L is interviewed after this by the press and they ask him what he thinks of Jackson. And, and he says, I am better pleased with him than I expected to be. This is the first time I ever spoke to him in my life. But he is an N-word, and that settles it with me. God did not intend him to be as good as a white man, or he would have changed his colour. Well, I guess that puts to rest any question to whether he was actually racist or not. Yeah. There is also the idea, well, he could still say horrible things, and he could be using it as a pretense to avoid Jackson. You know, his reason for not fighting him might not have been the colour, but, you know, the scare of loss. Yeah. At the same time, around this is happening, there's another Aussie who's making a big name for himself, who we talked about right at the start of this podcast. That's Frank Paddy Slavin. Yep. And he's on Sullivan's radar. Yep. So you've got to think Jackson's worried about that, a rival to take on the fight that he deserves. So he really meets that head on, doesn't he? Yeah, Slavin is making some noise at this point. He is well and truly one of the best heavyweights in the world. People in Australia think he's could be the best in the world. And he's calling himself the heavyweight champion of Australia. Jackson is not going to stand for that for a second, is he? Absolutely not. He's got his special, but he's got his belt that he takes everywhere. He's very proud of that title. Yeah, he's going to defend it, and they decide to throw down in London. Can I can I talk about this fight? For yeah, because I've, I've ended up reading Frank Paddy Slavin's book, yep. which is pretty fascinating. Because, like you said, um, there's a lot of rivalry between these two. And they come to this fight, and by all accounts, it is a, an, it's the fight of the year. It's opening up this national sporting club. There's, there's royalty there. There's young Winston Churchill there. Buffalo Bills there. Everyone wants to be there. It's packed. And people think Slavin's going to win it. Well, they, they, they think Slavin's the stronger, more like a John L. He's on the rise. Yeah. He's knocking people out. They think he's going to give them trouble. And um, Jackson's just too smart a fighter, just moving in and out of range, using range really well. But he's not hitting as hard as Slavin, but he's walking Slavin onto his punches. Slavin's nose and mouth gets mashed up. He has trouble breathing. And by the 10th round, he doesn't want to hit him anymore. You know, he's a gentleman in the ring. This is a guy he's sort of grown up in the ring with almost in his early days. And I'll, I'll read a story, an account of the fight. Experience shows that there's always a punch left in a big man, even when he appears disabled. Dallying at such a crisis is dangerous. Jackson, however, turned around in the most chivalrous manner and looked at the referee. But the rules of the game were beyond dispute. The referee said, fight on. There was nothing more to be said. I must finish him then. Sorry, Frank, is what Jackson apparently said, and put the final punches in to put, you know, slaving away. At the fifth punch, he fell forward on his knees and in a blind, instinctive effort to raise again, not knowing what he was doing, he clutched Peter Jackson round the legs, but he could not rise. Yeah, pretty brutal knockout. And the first time Frank Slavin had been beaten properly. You know, he'd lost some fights where... He had said he'd knock someone out in five rounds and they lasted and that was called a loss because someone stayed, you know, the rounds. Yep. But it was a pretty huge loss. Yeah. Another anecdote I want to share from that one, if I can hit you with it. Yep. You know, we always talk about fighters' excuses afterwards. This is Slavin had the best excuse ever because he said Lord Lunsdale, who was at the fight, gave him a bottle of port. Right. And he mixed the port with two parts water, one part port to keep him going through the fight. But then he accidentally drank from the wrong bottle that was pure port. And he said he was just, his legs went from him because he was too drunk. <laughs> While we're on Slavin, we should talk about what he said of Peter Jackson. Yeah. 
Slavin says, um, Peter stands out as perhaps the greatest heavyweight of all time. I'm quite sure that he could have defeated John L. Sullivan at any time. Sullivan drew the colour line on account of Jackson's great ability. Yeah. Gives you an idea of how good he is. Yeah. So come 1892, Sullivan finally defends his belt. Yep. But not against Jackson. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> he does it against Corbett. Jim. Corbett sneaks in. Yes. Yeah, this must have been a gut punch for Peter Jackson. He's wanted this fight forever and um, he doesn't get it. So, yeah, he's he, he goes along and watches the fight and uh, Gentleman Jim Corbett beats Sullivan. He upsets him. It's a huge deal. And uh, Sullivan's knocked out for the first time in his career. And the hits keep coming because Corbett, who he would think would fight him, who fought him once before, mm. he's not in a hurry to let him challenge for the title, is he? He does indicate he will fight Jackson, but on his terms. Pretty much he's putting him on the shelf. He's waiting for him to get old. Yeah, Corbett didn't make it easy for him either, did he? Because he sort of insisted in fighting in the... He wanted to fight in the South, which... That's dangerous. Very yeah, dangerous for a black man at that time. Yeah, the, well, that's, yeah, Jackson said, no one in this country needs to be told of the intense hatred of my race that exists South. And I firmly believe that if I whipped Corbett or any other white man down there, I would be shot before I could leave the ring. Jeez. You know, like it's, you, you feel like this is the beginning of the end almost for, for Jackson. He's been waiting so long and then he's waiting for this fight. He ends up acting for a while yep. like they all did at the time. And it's, it ends up being a, quite a bizarre idea because he's in Uncle Tom's cabin playing an old, you know, old Uncle Tom who ends, the, you know, ends up getting killed. And in the middle of this serious play, he's doing a boxing exhibition with Joe Choinsky but I, I can't imagine that's the best preparation for keeping fit you know traveling town to town probably boozing on yeah. and doing some you know sparring with Choinsky yeah he uh by all accounts he's certainly going downhill here he's always out in the town every, every second night he seems to be with a different woman Bob Fitzsimmons you know his, his old protege talks about seeing him in in London he says Peter's been going the pace a bit. There's no denying that, you know. So and it talks about, he's actually quite positive, I guess it's a friend, but he says he would want to have pretty strong willpower to keep straight over there for he's very popular and runs with a lively crowd. <laughs> so, well, the, the press start to, to criticise his lifestyle a lot here. Unlike, they, he used to be the gentleman beforehand, but now they're reporting that he's out to all hours of the night and... and and, yeah, dec- starting to decline physically, they, they start saying. You'd almost think it's over in the ring, but it's, it's not, is it? It's, is it going to be a last hurrah? So Peter has given up on that shot with Corbett, and in 1897... It doesn't matter anyway, because Bob Fitzsimmons ends up beating Corbett. You can only imagine how Jackson felt when he saw that. Here's someone that he knows he would have bested, yep. and they've gone on to win the title. You know, two times he's sort of been ignored and passed over yeah. for the title. That was, by most accounts, he would have won. Yeah. Yeah, so, so by 1888, Jackson has not fought in six years, and he's almost broke. And he takes a fight with a guy, an up-and-coming fighter called Jim Jeffries. Jim Jeffries is, you know, hard-headed, can take a punch, can walk through punches. He's athletic, he's strong. Big. Yeah, and big. Big, strong man. It's, it's 
Spells danger. Yes, and it is dangerous. It's um, it's a bad fight for Pete. It's, I mean, a huge attraction. There were thousands of people there, but it doesn't go well for Peter. He gets he gets finished pretty quickly. He says afterwards, I've had done to me tonight what I've done to many others in my day, but it's hard to see the reputation which has taken me 15 years to earn swept away in a few minutes. Gosh. And the press at the time are just giving it to him. There's a report that says, the black hero of the prize ring, the idol of the galleries, and one of the cleanest and cleverest fighters that ever stood in a ring is a has-been, finally and for always. Yeah, it's a pretty devastating you know, line. But Jeffries, he said, sometimes you hear arguments about whose championship career was the greatest. Well, the great Peter Jackson's name doesn't rightly belong in my record. I only lick the shell of Peter Jackson. Past it. He's past it there. So that, that was his last fight of note, I guess you'd say. Um, Frank Paddy Slavin comes into the picture then. After he'd finished his boxing career, he'd gone to the, the Klondike in Canada on, with the Gold Rush. Obviously talking to the friendship that he had with Peter Jackson, you know, the, outlived their rivalry. He brought Jackson to Skagway, which is this tiny port town in Alaska, which had been big during the gold rush to put on an exhibition, a boxing exhibition, and earn money. And he says, even then, that he thinks he was in the first stages of TB, tuberculosis. And they put on an exhibition, he said, it was a tame affair compared to our slashing struggle in London six years earlier. Jackson was in the first stages of consumption, and I could have easily knocked him out. He goes on and says, I was still as rugged and strong as I was in the London. Yeah, he gives himself a few raps. Yeah. But it's a sad story there. He's going downhill here. Yeah, and just fast. You know, yeah. And you talk about fates intertwined. It's there, Jackson says, that he came down with pneumonia and ended up really sick. And that kind of tumbled into his return to Australia when he was so sick he had to go. But he went back to Australia to be amongst friends while he was in the last stages of his life. Yeah, most people say say he has tuberculosis. Um, some people said he had a heart condition. But yeah, he's very crook by the time he gets home to Australia. People said he could hardly speak above a whisper. That's how affected his lungs were. Tuberculosis at the time was really widespread. It was one of the leading causes of death. You could, a lot of people were carrying it and didn't know they had it until their immune system was down. So something like pneumonia on a trip to Skagway... Yep. Or even if you get your ribs busted up like yep. you did against Slavin, you know, it's hard to know. Or when. if you're out drinking every yeah, night. Yeah, so. exactly. It's, it's, it's if you're what, living the pace that kills yeah. is the phrase <laughs> they use. So, yeah, it's hard to know when he got hit by it. There's a quote that I do want to get in about him leaving America, and um, mainly because it's by a guy called Otto Flotto. And I wanted to get Otto Flotto in there, but he, he, worked, he was a newspaper man in Denver, Colorado, and he, he said... When Peter left here to go back home to die, there was not an expert in this country but was aware that the skin and bones in the old broken-down hulk returning to Australia was the best piece of human fighting machinery that America had ever witnessed in action. Yeah, so lands, lands back in Australia and they throw a big, a big uh, reception for him. Larry Foley's there. And they, he doesn't slow down either. He goes out on the drink <laughs> when he comes back to Australia but yeah, he pays for it, and uh, they said he was sick for for a while after he after he landed, and you know spends some time in Sydney. But they move him up to Queensland, where they think the air will be better for his lungs. So he's in Roma in Queensland. Yeah, and for people who don't know, that's a small town now. 
then it's just a tiny outpost 500 kilometers from brisbane which itself is a small town so he's really in the middle of nowhere to the people of roma no disrespect but <laughs> it's it's a long way from london or the you know san francisco where he used to be the yeah. toast of the town yeah and uh and that's where he passes away we talked about like how sad it is or but I, like right to the end he had friends there supporting him this wasn't a guy who you know ended up a pauper dying on the streets he's a guy who had fallen on hard times had illness and was still greeted by hundreds of people when he came to australia there were mm. still banquets there were people that helped him get care he was widely celebrated in his life and mm. thousands of people came to the funeral yeah. i heard it was the biggest or one of the biggest funerals brisbane had ever seen at that yeah. point and then to fast forward to when finally a black man does get a shot of the title, 1908. Peter Jackson had gone all the way to America trying to get a title. The man that finally won it, Jack Johnson, had to come all the way to Australia to fight a Canadian. On the way home, he stops in Brisbane and asks to be taken to the cemetery. And I'll, I'll just read it in full. It says in the article that he asked to see, you know, the great, the resting place of the late Peter Jackson, the first coloured champion who had entitled himself in the opinion of many to be styled the world's best heavyweight boxer. And he goes out to Tu Wong Cemetery and it said, There on the quiet, picturesque hillside, the living champion spent a few moments in silent contemplation of the spot where rested the mortal remains of the dead. It was an impressive sight indeed to see the splendid form of the living gladiator bending for a moment over the tomb of he who was Australia's fistic idol, and the solemnity of the occasion for the time swept his now famous smile from Johnson's face. Yeah, well, that's I think, great. You know, that's, that's the esteem this man was held in, and that's how important people knew he was, both Australians, the boxers of the world, and you can hardly find a bad word said about him. Yeah. Um. I think we've covered everything we need to do yeah. about Peter Jackson. I guess, yeah, is there any final thoughts you want to leave us with? Yeah. So few boxing stories end well, and this is no different. But Jackson really did pave the way for black boxers and black athletes. Um, we've heard from his peers around the time about how good a boxer he was, um, but there's also great insight from his, his manager at the time, Sam Fitzpatrick. And why it's interesting is Fitzpatrick was also the manager of Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion, and in some people's opinion, the greatest black heavyweight, greatest heavyweight champion. And someone asked Fitzpatrick years later, who was the better fighter between Jackson and Johnson? And he said Jackson was. He said he, if the two had fought, he would have won easily. Um, so that's how good Peter Jackson yeah. was. It's, and then even to go back to Corbett, who refused him the shot, you know, Corbett wrote... He was one of the most magnificent physical specimens of manhood I ever saw, one of the most intelligent pugilists that ever stepped in a ring. He said he was the greatest fighter I have ever seen. I wish everyone knew the story of Peter Jackson. You know, I wish every Australian knew it. To the, any listeners out there who are listening right now, um, we'd really love it if you can share it, the story of Peter Jackson so more people know about it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>